0: Welcome to Survive and Thrive, where Oklahomans reflect on COVID-19 and racism. Survive and Thrive is a 24-episode podcast series where our team will interview Oklahomans across a diverse spectrum as how to survive and thrive during the two-fold crisis of the health and racial pandemics. Oklahomans are no stranger to tragedy. The state's history is checkered with traumas such as the Dust Bowl, Tulsa Race Massacre, Trail of Tears, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Out of those tragedies was born the Oklahoma Standard. Now, as the state once again grapples with hardship, this time with COVID-19 and racial heartache, we will hear from multiple Oklahomans who must once again learn to survive and thrive. We're your hosts, Brooklyn Wayland
1: and Carolee Langford. This podcast recounts tragic events from the Oklahoma City bombing. Discretion is advised. With regard to this
2: proceeding, basically, there are four elements that I have to... uh...
1: ...receive information regarding... Everybody let's get out of here! Now! I can see... It looks like part of the building has been... blown away. The explosion went off around 9 a.m. and we could
2: feel the explosion in the newsroom of Channel 9, at least five miles from downtown. As the chopper goes around the side of the federal building, Jesus, look at that shot, it cow. is absolutely incredible. The side of the federal building has been blown off. The yes. morning, I always remember it was a Wednesday, just because at the fire station you have specific duties you do on certain days. We, we maintain our fire station. Wednesday was yard day. And I just remember the guys out mowing and weed eating. So I just remember we had to stop and get them on the way. It's one of those things where, you know, we're still 10 or 11 blocks away, and we're seeing, uh, on Broadway, we're seeing buildings with uh, windows blown out, storefront windows blown out. People kind of walking out with, you know, just a daze, like everybody was. As we got closer, it's like, um, it's weird, where we had to park, it was kind of a little hill on Fifth Street, and so as we were coming, walking, we parked a block away, and as we were walking the Hoppus Hill, all of a sudden we just see these hordes of people, you know, coming at us, and uh, still not, we still can't see the building yet. And you know, there's a lot of people with uh, what we call walking wounded, a lot of injuries from flying glass and debris. It was probably an hour into the incident, or 30, 45 minutes to an hour before we actually got to. I, I got to take a full view of the building, and I'm and I'm sure you know adrenaline was going, and I was moving and working, but it felt like you were just kind of standing still in time.
0: On April 19th, 1995, shortly after 9 a.m the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City exploded as a truck bomb went off at the loading dock entrance. 9.01 a.m., a time when Oklahoma stood still for only a moment before first responders and Oklahomans alike rushed to the scene. One of those first responders was Chris Fields.
2: When we got there, you know, debris was still floating down, and we weren't even walking on the pavement. We were walking on, you know, probably a layer of the uh, a couple of inches thick of you know, glass and debris. On the front of the building, they called it the pile. There was a big pile of debris. And the way those first rescuers got in there was they tunneled their way in by, by hand. They, they, by the time the guys got to where they could get into the building, there was a train of six or seven firefighters laying on their bellies. And all they were doing was taking debris and shoving it back between their legs. And that guy behind him would do the same and they would do it all the way to the outside the building, they'd fill up a five gallon bucket and take it away. That's how the first rescuers from that side of the building actually got in. They tunneled by hand five gallon buckets at a time. So, and those, those are kind of things, the images that really stand out in my mind.
0: Were you were you able to process any of this or when did it hit you, like what you were seeing?
2: Honestly, really not until, even, even through the recovery, you know, uh, finding people and, and bringing bodies out. And, the the reality and the levy didn't hit you till about eleven o'clock that night. We were finally given a break. We were told to go to R and R to you know rest and rehabilitate. I think that's when everybody it was our first chance to say you know just kind of go just take a just take a breath really and started you know kind of processing what was going on mm-hmm. and you know and and we were just sitting there talking. I remember talking to the guys about it and uh, put it this way, 168 victims. If you would see the building to think that only 168 people would have been killed is a, a miracle, by no stretch. I mean, 168 is a huge, huge loss. But to, uh, right. to rea- see the building and realize that only 168 people lose their lives was just was crazy.
1: So you said even before you could see the building, you first saw people coming towards mm-hmm. you. What was going through your mind at that moment? When
2: we first saw the people coming at us, really, we had no idea. I mean,
1: mm-hmm. we were
2: we were still thinking it was a natural gas explosion, okay. or there was. Uh, there was some remodeling going on at the water resources uh, board building across the street. So we were thinking a welder's torch, you know, maybe acetylene, maybe set off an explosion. And, and to see what we saw, the, the walking wounded didn't prepare us for what, for what the building looked like. It was the first 20, 30 minutes was pretty chaotic.
0: Yeah. So there's obviously a very famous photo of you carrying Bailey Allman out of the building Mm -hmm. and I feel like every Oklahoman has seen it. Um, Even me who's too young uh, to (laughs) have witnessed this like I know that photo and that's what I associate with that day. A lot of the public considers you a hero for that photo and everything else you did that Mm -hmm. day. Do you do you think of yourself as a hero?
2: No and everybody that does that does our profession first any kind of first responder will tell you we're not because we're actually doing what we're trained to do. To me, the heroes are the citizens that we had to tell them to get out of the building. I mean, no formal training, no safety equipment, no nothing. So, you know, they weren't even trained or prepared to do what they were doing, but they were in there. So to us, those are, you know, the people that step up like that are the heroes. To us, we view it as, and i say another cliche statement, we were, we were just simply doing our job. So I don't think any first responder, we're very uncomfortable with that term because we're, I mean, we're actually doing what we're trained and, and paid to do mm-hmm. but but we also understand where that view comes from from the public so
0: tell us about your relationship with um with Bailey's mom
2: like I say, it was one of the deals with the irrational guilt I felt responsible I felt like I needed to be so at first I was doing it more maybe make myself feel better because mm-hmm. I was going okay be there for her if she needs something that'll help you deal with your internal struggle you're dealing with what she's going through but over time man, we just we just bonded and and uh, it's almost, she's, uh, she's like 11 years younger than me. I She was 20, I think, at the bombing. And so it was just kind of a big brother-little sister relationship is kind of what I took on. And it got to be where to honor her. I wouldn't do any interviews if she wasn't doing them. I mean, if somebody mm-hmm. called and said, hey, would you mind? I said, well, is Aaron doing it? Well, no, we haven't talked to her well. I said, well, you need to talk to her. Because they didn't want to talk about the fire. If they want to talk about the fire service, they want to talk about something like that, I'd be okay. Yeah. But if they want to talk about her child of and course, the photo, yeah. I would always, you know. But it's evolved into a deal to where, like I said, now that I have the platform I have because of the bombing and the photo. I mean, there was other firefighters that day that probably saw a lot more traumatic things. I mean, we all saw a lot that day that nobody should have to see, but mine just happened to be caught with a camera. And because of that, I'm blessed to get to have this platform. And so that helps Erin. She gets to see some good coming out of, and I have her blessing, you know, I use the photo, I'm speaking very briefly. I don't like to show it very long, but then I show a photo of Bailey. And I do that to honor Bailey and Aaron. And then I show a picture of the 168 victims, too. Not all individual, but a, a little group picture they made. Right, yeah. And I do that to honor them because I wouldn't have the platform to be out doing what I'm doing. And I have Aaron's full blessing. That's, and I think that's, that's good for her because she gets to see some good come out of uh out of bailey's death
0: how did this i know you've kind of talked about this how did this like affect you as a father
2: i think it goes back to that same thing man just uh, uh a blessing to uh to have them every day I've, I've been fortunate with my two sons that uh and i always tell people when they think i'm kidding i've never even had a parent teacher conference i don't even know what those are about
1: <laughs> i mean i've been i've
2: been truly fortunate um and uh so it, it really it uh it's just one of them deals where it just makes you more appreciative um and not take them for granted. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not. I don't. I wasn't a disciplinarian. I wasn't strict. You don't just let them run wild. But I mean, <laughs> I think just the appreciation of uh, of having them every day. It's just like the what I said about getting being able to live every day. Like I said, Bailey was one year old. At the, she turned one year old the day before. And you know, when I was holding her, I had a son at home, my oldest one. He was two at the time. So to put myself in that position and think that, you know, for every year that Aaron's reminded you know well not just Aaron but all the families reminded that day of the people they lost yeah and so I just think mad as they make me sometimes (laughs) as (laughs) frustrated as I get I'm, I'm thankful for
0: it how did april 19 1995 change how you saw your career
2: april nineteenth, nineteen 1995 it was a um, it really changed the fire service but i think it realized that we were we weren't just a fire department so now i think they're i think they're still referred to as a fire department now we're like emergency services because we do you know we do rescues we do you know we do underwater rescues we do you know everything high-rise rescues there's it involves so many different things and a lot of that was to increase our skills our knowledge was born out of the Oklahoma City bombing.
1: How did the aftermath of going through that with your team? How did it affect you guys as a team?
2: I think as as a as team, we um, you know it's it's kind of weird. Fire departments a pretty good brotherhood and sisterhood anyway. Yeah. I mean it is, but I think going through something almost like a family. If you go through some kind of major trauma together, it kind of brings you closer together. That was one thing I noticed after the after the the bombing was um, not the maybe not the fire department as a whole because it's always had a pretty good brotherhood Mm -hmm. but at that at my station in particular Mm -hmm. I noticed that you know everybody was a little more you know open with their feelings you know uh, love your brother love you see you know whatever that that was a little more prevalent I mean I, I think they all took that same deal as you know we're not especially in our line of work you know we're not guaranteed tomorrow
0: like you talk about that um the whole idea of being able to now um talk about your feelings and that kind of thing, and that's such an Oklahoma thing I feel like it, before uh, you know yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps like
1: yep. keep and on going that tells me that yeah. yeah
0: so I feel like it's really good that, that you guys can be able to talk about that and you guys have all you said that it's just gotten different since then, so
2: it has, it has and then I noticed uh. Even when I, was, when I was diagnosed with PTSD and I, and I was gone from the rigs for a while, I went away for treatment and all that. But when I came back, I wasn't, I wasn't shy about telling them where I'd been.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think that helped open up some doors. I noticed that we were more the last five or six years on the job is, is when I say I opened up the guys, told them where I'd been, what I'd been through, the things I'd done. I didn't hold anything back. But I did that to let them know that if you're feeling that way, it's okay. And you can come through it. And so I, I noticed after that, even that, uh, even at the station, when we come back from a traumatic call, we were a little more willing to talk about our emotions and our feelings a little bit more.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do now, talking to firefighters about PTSD?
2: Yeah, I uh, I work with uh, me and a couple other guys from around the country. They're uh, retired law enforcement SWAT guys. I mean, these are guys that have. Uh, one of my good friends is the a guy that actually the Pulse nightclub shooting. He was the actual officer know. that shot and killed the uh the pulse nightclub shooter oh, wow, i mean okay. so it's guys like that, that we've all got yeah. these stories and he did the same thing he went down some pretty you know dark roads and so we just go out and we speak to first responder groups at conferences or whatever they can have us come in and we just tell our story and it's more so to let them know that now there's there's an avenue yeah to to reach out and uh, you know uh, uh, Sheriff in Florida coined a phrase, and it's simple, but it's so true. It's just it's, you know, it's, it's okay not to be okay, and that was not accepted in the first responder world. It is now, and uh, so we just go out and let everybody know that you know there's avenues to reach out. Your 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 feelings you have, your reactions are human. I mean, they're natural to a traumatic event. We just try to let them know that you know it doesn't have to. You don't have to get to the point we got to. You know where we think about taking our lives because we couldn't deal with the trauma anymore. For me, it was by the time I was able to process the trauma, well now I was dealing with all the things I had done to my family and friends in the process of not dealing with the trauma very well. Yeah. So it's just kind of a double-edged deal but we just try to get the word out that there's so many avenues and so much help out there that it doesn't have to get that far.
0: You've kind of talked about like the training, like you're trained to kind of like react quickly when things like this happen, like just go into work mode. Mm-hmm. But like were you prepared to like, deal with like a tragedy of yeah, this large can of a ever scale? you truly be prepared?
2: You think you're always prepared, but then you're really never prepared. You know, we trained, we trained in that kind of stuff. There's there's training and there's reality. Training, everything's kind of staged and scripted for you and you know what's gonna happen next. And this was just so different. Um, fortunately, at that time in 1995, as y'all know, we got some help from urban search and USAR teams, urban search and rescue teams from around the country. But, yes. At about a year before that Oklahoma City we had started getting the training what we needed to do to form our own USAR team which Oklahoma does have now but so we were we were learning how to uh, to move large slabs of concrete you know without machinery okay. we were learning all these things at that time and and, and you know and tunneling in through debris right. so some of it you know some of the training came back but uh like you say when it's when it's right there in front of you. You know, When a uh, perfect example is when, we're, when we were training for it, we were crawling in these little concrete tubes, I mean, just barely big enough to squeeze through because that was some of the places that you might have to go in an incident. So, you know, you can train, and all, but when the reality hits and then you have to do things like
0: that. What is your relationship with, like, the remembrance of this tragedy? Like, do you go to the memorial events every year? Is that something that's been, like, an avenue of healing for you, or is it still difficult?
2: It's, it's really not difficult for me personally anymore. I mean, it's just, I mean, I still think, when that day rolls around, I always think about Aaron. I used to try to avoid it, and just because, you know, that first year or so, or year and a half, when I was doing a lot of interviews, I got to know a lot of the local media people, and, which they were always great. Uh, national media, not so much. But it's because they're not from here. They don't, right. they didn't, I mean, I, I didn't, it wasn't personal. It was just, they just treat it different. I noticed uh, we were at the ceremony, and, and a reporter from, I don't even remember where they were from, out of state recognized me came over and started talking to me next thing you know I had five or six and that wasn't the reason that day was for the victims and for the mm-hmm. victims families and next thing I know I had you know eight or nine reporters around time I thought okay this isn't what this is about so that's that's the main reason I mean I could probably go now I'm bald I don't have a mustache <laughs> or hair anymore so I mean I could probably go and pull it off now but uh, <clears throat> then I just used to stay away because I didn't want to take away from what that day to me was truly about
1: can you can you tell me? maybe what are some of the lessons that you learned from that day
2: uh yeah one of the again i i, I hate to give cliche answers but it's just you know it's, especially for that was not to take every day for granted i mean it's it is it's truly a blessing to get up and put my feet on the floor every morning because you know those people were expecting to do the same thing they got up went to work you know and uh people's lives were were just Wrecked forever. I mean, I know I know people that were injured that are still having surgeries. You know, twenty five wow. years yeah. later, um, some of the people have got glass shards in them. Still have glass coming out of their bodies twenty five years gosh. later. And so, for me, um, I don't take any day for granted anymore.
1: I know that everyone deals with stress and anxiety in different ways, but for you, what like me personally, I'm, I bake. Oh gosh, I beg all the time. It's it's a problem. But for you, what did you lean towards?
0: Nothing
2: good. No, that's a <laughs> that's a lot of the untold uh, you know story for me was uh, some of the things I I did deal with afterwards. Um, and for me, a lot of the you know I get to I'm blessed. I get to travel around now and speak to first responders about PTSD and you know the effects of trauma and all that kind of stuff. And it's a blessing, but the The reason I get to do it is because I didn't handle it very well. So, and you know, in 1995, PTSD really wasn't a thing. You know, especially after the bombing and after the photo, uh, I started having a lot of what should I come now to know is, you know, irrational guilt because I felt, you know, I felt responsible for being the last one to, you know, hold uh, Bailey. Aaron didn't get to hold her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she didn't get, because of the photo, which of course, irrational guilt, she didn't get to grieve in private like everybody yeah. else and Bailey kind of got oh even when I go speak now I show a picture of Bailey mm-hmm. just because she always gets you know when they talk about the other children they talk about how they loved this toy or loved this well <clears throat> Bailey was just the baby in the firefighter's arms yeah. so for me I took on a lot of that responsibility of trying to be there for Aaron all the time and then also you know being there for my wife and my I only had one son at the time so it, it took a toll on me mentally and emotionally and uh, it led to some. Uh, learned some pretty dark times and yeah. uh, so to answer your question at that time I didn't handle it very well at all and I didn't really have a, a vice or anything to release the you know the tension or whatever you want to call it yeah the, the trauma so uh, today I do but uh, back then it was just kind of a deal where we all you know the big term called suck it up and that's what that's what we did mm-hmm. I'm, I'm from that era where no like matter if it was sports a, yeah. or yeah. if it was working on the job you just you didn't have time. You just sucked it up, and went on down the road, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of. There's still guys today that are you know struggling because of the Oklahoma City bombing, and uh, you know retirees that uh, are still struggling today.
0: So many talk about like the Oklahoma Standard. Um, how has that been like prevalent following the bombing, like immediately, um, and also as the state has continued to heal and grapple with the scars of this tragedy all <laughs> of these years later?
2: Yeah, well, I'll just tell you this: Oklahoma Standard. For me, of course, I'm much older. Than y'all, but uh, you know they talk about how great the people were and how these people that came in from out of town to help, how they were treated. To me, there's always been that Oklahoma standard. Uh, it just got put in the national spotlight because of the bombing. So I don't think it was anything new for Oklahomans, but for people not from here, it was a pretty new experience. But uh, I think that's. Uh, I've all, I was speaking a deal the other day, and you know we're talking about what's going on in America right now, and you know it was 9/11 anniversary, and I just said, you know, there's with all the devices, everything that's going on, we'll always, Oklahoma, or America, always finds a way. I mean, we always find a way to regroup, rebuild, unite. I mean, it may take a little longer sometimes than others, but, and that was the same thing with Oklahoma, you know, when that happened. Uh, man, we've grown, we've prospered, and the people that were doing all the things that day that what became described as Oklahoma Standard
0: mm-hmm.
2: are still doing those things today, and they still would mm-hmm. if it happened again.
0: How? Do you think that like how we learned as Oklahomans to deal with tragedy with the bombing how is that going to affect how we overcome the pandemic and the blatant racism that we're seeing today
2: Humans are not very nice people sometimes <laughs> sometimes I mean it's just and the way I was raised also I was raised in uh, you know Del City Oklahoma which is a pretty you know diversified community and growing up playing you know sports very diversified teams when I was growing up so to me it's just I just I don't it's hard for me to wrap my mind around I don't. I don't understand the, you know, the racism and the, and the hatred, and, the, and I always tell people, you know, in my profession and law enforcement and guys that sign up for the military, guys and girls that go to the military, when those lights came on at 2 in the morning to send us on a ride, the dispatchers didn't ask and we don't ask. I don't care about your political affiliation. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care your sexual orientation. It, it doesn't matter you're a human being and our yeah. job is to protect and serve and so i take that aspect from it now people that don't work in that profession or have a job like that they see it different and they're raised different because and i'll, and I'll tell you and you can ask my sons uh i strongly believe that, that racism is, is taught you're not you're not born we're born loving nurturing people and so these people develop that but i think uh, overcoming it it's one of those things i talked about earlier when i said it's going to take longer i think than the normal and the normal you know just the like 9-11 or the bombing or floods Mm -hmm. and hurricanes. It's amazing how we all pull together for that stuff. And then as soon as it's over, we're right back to this group, that group, you know. And so Mm -hmm. it's just going to, I think it's going to take some time. But like I've always said before also, I think we we will find a way, you know. And what we got to remember is nobody is ever going to be happy. I mean, you're not going to please everybody all the time. And that's just what some people are going to have to and I'm, you know, so it's it's a sad time, I think, right now. It really is some of the things that you see going on. Like I said, it's just um, if we could apply the Oklahoma standard to everybody. Not that, not that Oklahoma's perfect and we don't have problems here, but that standard from that day yeah. that we even took to New York City after 9-11. Mm-hmm, right. We sent uh, victims' families and rescuers there because we knew what they were going through. So, as they say, it's just a thing of, you know, just being there for,
1: for each other. So... Talking a little bit more about what's going on today. Do you think that we could ever have a new normal? How can Oklahoma be resilient? How can we come back?
2: I think there's gonna be a new normal. Yeah Regardless, I mean everybody can say "Oh, things are never and they never do and that's probably good Think things never mm-hmm. go back to the way they were right. and that's in this situation It's probably good. I'll, I'll be honest and say I am kind of sad that some of our history is being they want to erase it because I think we can learn from it if, you, if it doesn't exist how do you learn from it yeah. where, where do you where do you point to examples of bad behavior or bad history if there's if it's not there mm-hmm. so but I think that moving forward like I said it's just look at America I mean it doesn't matter you know the depression the Spanish flu, all these things we've been through and we always find a way to get back on our feet but there will definitely be one well, called a new normal it's just going to be the normal maybe it's an awakening we needed maybe we as americans were getting a little too comfortable or whatever and you know i don't agree with a lot of some things that are going on from either direction, doesn't matter. That's how I've always kind of positioned myself, whether it be politically or, or whatever the case may be. I never just jump in and, well, this is how I got to stand for this, or oh, I got, you know, I'm like, I stand for this, I believe in this, but tell me why I should believe. You know, and that's what we need more right. of. And, yeah. and uh, we need more, we, yeah. we need a lot more conversation. Maybe the way I was raised and the profession I did, people were just people to me. But I think we'll get there and there'll definitely be a, a new normal. Yeah. And like I said, that's probably probably a good thing.
1: Thank you for listening to Survive and Thrive. On the next podcast, we will speak with Justin Norris, SGA Student Body President at the University of Oklahoma. We will discuss life on campus amid the coronavirus and how the university and its students can address the racial heartache in our state today. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts by searching Survive in OKLA. We are your hosts, Carolee and Brooklyn. Join us every Wednesday for new episodes. Also participating in this podcast project are Kimberly Burke, our manager, Jesse Smith, researcher and writer, Sue Shen Fan, the social media coordinator, and Miranda Vondale, our audio engineer. This podcast is presented by Gaylord News.